Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We spent the summer reading together and discussing some of the most difficult issues around housing insecurity here in Southeast Michigan. Our inaugural Detroit Today Summer Book Club has taken us to Warren, to Ferndale, Gross Point, Ann Arbor, and of course, to Detroit. And at each point, we have had wonderful and engaging conversations with you, our listeners, about a wide range of concerns. We've heard from tenants who worry about their own housing stability. We've heard from teachers who've seen their students' lives affected by housing insecurity. We've heard from activists who are working hard to make change in this space. And we've even heard from landlords who sit at the difficult moral crossroads where profit and survivability and the need for shelter all come together. It's been quite a summer, and it will culminate tomorrow at the Detroit Public Library, where we're going to have our final event and tape a live broadcast of our show. That is 6.30 p.m. tomorrow at the Detroit Public Library. But before that, we want to go back to the origins of this book club idea and to the text that inspired it. Matthew Desmond was a Ph.D. candidate when he began spending time with tenants and landlords in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, learning about their struggles and their lives. His dissertation about those people and those issues became the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. And that book is what led us to want to take our own look at housing insecurity issues here in southeast Michigan. Matthew Desmond joined us two years ago when his book was published, and we are pleased to have him back today to help us close out our summer of reading and discussion around his work. Matthew Desmond, welcome back to Detroit Today. It's great to be back. Really honored to be here. Yes, it's great to hear your voice. Um, So let's start here. Let's go back to the book, uh, and let's talk about the people you profiled in the book. Do you keep up with them? Do you keep in contact with them? And update us on what's going on in their lives now. We do keep in contact. And, um, you know, when you do work like this, uh, you you fall in love with people and you you get to know them and you uh, they become your friends. And I think that for those of us that that write books like this, um, there's an idea out there that, you know, we have to have some distance to really get things right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's plenty of distance out there. And I, I think that when we, when we go all in, we can learn things that we, we don't. And so, you know, uh, Crystal's doing better. You know, Crystal uh, managed to get uh, her hands on a, a, a housing voucher and is in a kind of a more stabilized situation. Mm-hmm. Arlene's doing better as well. She moved out of Milwaukee into more stable housing. Uh, Jafarish is going to you know, one school, you know, year mm-hmm. after year, which is something that uh, his younger days uh, never afforded him. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Lorraine, uh, we helped Lorraine move into a, kind of a new uh, development. Uh, and it's it's this beautiful apartment overlooking Milwaukee, really, and um, got her in there. And she just, she just loves it. She's just tickled. Wow. So I think that, you know, some folks are, are, are doing better. And then some folks have, have stumbled on other hard times, too, you know, um, Vanetta, um, as you'll remember, she uh, she was working at Old Country Buffet mm-hmm. and her hours got cut, mm-hmm. and she she was terrified of losing her home and maybe her kids, and she committed armed robbery. So she she did her time, and um, she came out, and as you know, you know, coming out of uh, prison looking for employment again is a struggle, and so she struggled with that, 
And then um, we've had a few folks uh, pass away. We've had a few folks die. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's always that's always tough, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so as embedded as you were with these folks, as you point out, you, you, you become part of their lives and they become part of, of yours. Uh, talk a little more about that method of observation and research and, and maybe whether that's changed the way you think about uh, how we ought to approach these kinds of issues, this kind of deep reporting and and research uh, is not is still not terribly common. I think uh, when we're talking about poverty uh, and and housing insecurity. Yeah, I think you can tell the difference. You know, when someone um, is talking about these issues, and they and they have uh, a poor person's phone number in their phone or not. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have the Western Union app on their phone or not. If they're uh, if they're embedded in the lives of folks that are that are hurting. You know, and um, and so for me, there's things you learn that are different than things that you you can't learn any any w- way else. And so, just like basic stuff, like um, how do we measure eviction? You know, so. I was living in this trailer park and my neighbor got hurt on the job. He was working construction, hurt his back, couldn't make the rent, got evicted. He and his wife's names appear in the eviction records. And so I asked his wife, like, well, what was it like being evicted? And she was like, we weren't evicted. Hmm. You know, we didn't get evicted. That's like the sheriff coming and throws all your stuff out. Hmm. And so that was a moment dawning on me. It's like, oh, the way we've been asking eviction in our survey questions, you know, it's totally wrong. And, you know, um, and so just that's a just a little thing that you mm-hmm. learn mm-hmm. Uh, just from listening to the folks who are at the knife edge of this problem. And then you learn this other thing, which is just how, like, I mean, you know, hilarious people are mm-hmm. and how spunky <laughs> people are and how full of reserves they are. Mm-hmm. And I remember being with Crystal and Vanetta. My favorite moment in the book is when Crystal and Vanetta are at this McDonald's and this young boy walks in and he's like nine or 10 and he, he doesn't go to order. He goes uh, around to the tables looking for scraps. You know, he's hungry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these two women who are homeless, who met at a homeless shelter, spot him, pull their change and, and buy him lunch. Yeah. And, and it moved me. It shook me. And it reminds me how gracefully people refuse to be reduced to their hardships. That's what you learn, too, yeah. uh, when you have the privilege of, of getting out in the world. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that struck us about the book when we first read it here at the station and I think has struck a lot of our listeners this summer as they've been reading it again with us is the impact of poverty and housing insecurity on kids uh, right. and, on, and on families. Uh, and, and your story there uh, from the book about the, the kid who walks into the McDonald's yeah. and is looking for change on tables is an illustration of that. Um, give us a sense of what you learned about the sort of long-term impact of housing insecurity on children from your research. Well, I mean, it's so true that the face of this problem is just moms with kids, you know, mm-hmm. and you walk in about any ha- her- urban housing quarter around the country and you just see a ton of kids, you know, and um, until recently, eviction court in the South Bronx in New York City literally had a daycare inside of it. Mm-hmm. Because there were so many kids coming in. It was like, you know, <laughs> the South Bronx eviction court daycare, you know. And I remember one of the most um, disturbing things I saw in the field was, you know, I was spending time with Arlene. And she was living with Trisha and her friend. And Trisha kind of moved out suddenly. And um, 
and movers came to to kind of clear her stuff out. And mm-hmm. so Jafaris comes home. I think he's seven. And I've got an eight-year-old right now. Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to imagine my eight-year-old being in this situation. But mm-hmm. Jafaris is seven. He comes home. He looks in the scene. It's crazy. You know, his mom's running around trying to find the cell phone and medication. That There's strangers in the house packing everything up. And he just takes it in. And he, uh, he doesn't, like, uh, get his favorite toy. He doesn't ask a question. He doesn't cry. Mm-hmm. He just goes outside and plays, you know, it's become normalized for him. And that's so, it's so shaking. To your question about like what that kind of thing does mm-hmm. to kids like Jafaris, I mean, I think we can line it up. You know, when kids are not able to go to the same school year after year, they can't form friendships, relationships with teachers and guidance counselors. They can't um, have a chance at, you know, reaching their full potential under those conditions. We have evidence that shows that eviction pushes families into worse neighborhoods, into worse housing. Mm-hmm. We know those things are really bad for kids' development. If they're surrounded by you know, violence, for example, if they're living in unstable or uh, unhealthy housing conditions. We have a study that shows eviction causes job law, or eviction causes uh, depression in mothers two years later. That has to have an effect on how uh, well they can parent as well. Mm-hmm. So we're still getting after this question. We're still really, we really want to document the wreckage it's having and the kids' lives, but the things we've learned already uh, are pretty st- pretty startling. Yeah, um, you mentioned Jafaris, and the, the the scene that sticks with me that involves him is is when they come back to a place that they've been evicted from, and and their pet is still there. Uh, yeah. and he's trying to engage with the pet, and and his mother is really trying to just get him to to walk away from it, and I just all the time think about how difficult that would have been for both of them, right? Think of the attachment that that we all have to pets. Think of the attachment that kids have to pets. And in that moment where his mother says, leave that, leave that alone. We've got to go. Um, it's just, it's, it's heart wrenching. Yeah. And I, I feel that, you know, for those of us who have stable housing and for those of us who are well fed, you know, we can, Kind of look at that moment and, and judge Arlene, judge judge uh, the mom in that situation. But I think Arlene was acting out of something like love, you know, something like protection, and she didn't want her kid to get her, his heart broken again, right. you know. And and so you know, if you don't want him to to get his heart broken, you kind of distance him from this thing he loves, you know. You kind of take it away before it could be taken away. And um, so I think that she was she was teaching him something about you know, where they were in the world at that time. Right. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Matthew Desmond, professor of sociology at Princeton University, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. We are talking to him as part of our Detroit Today Summer Book Club, where we have been reading Evicted as a Community and talking about housing insecurity issues here in southeast Michigan and how they reflect the things that come out in Evicted uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. If you read the book with us this summer and have a question for Matthew, now is the time to ask those questions that have been weighing on your mind. If you haven't read the book, we still want to hear from you. Have you experienced housing insecurity or homeless here in Southeast Michigan? Are you a landlord who struggles with this issue, uh, as landlords also do? Uh, Are you somebody who sees this issue in your neighborhood or in your school? or in your church and wonder 
what uh, you might be able to do to make things better. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Matthew, I want to talk a little about landlords. Uh, At the events that we've had around Southeast Michigan this summer, at each of them, uh, landlords have shown up to talk about eviction. And I've been surprised in some instances by the candor uh, that they've brought to that conversation. But, But I've also noted the incredible empathy that all of them seem to have, even though in some cases they are in a position of doing things that really badly affect uh, people who, who, who live in their houses. Um, in, in the book, of course, there is this nuance and humanity that, uh, that you bring to the landlord characters as well as to uh, the tenants. Uh, I, I, I think that complicates the way we think about the issue, and it sort of complicates the way we think about uh, uh, solutions. Oh, it totally does. And it's, it's so great that landlords are part of these discussions. I think that, you know, most of our families that are living below the poverty line live in the private rental market. Mm-hmm. They're renting their homes from landlords. Landlords have to be part of our discussions. They have to be part of the solution. We have to understand um, things about their, their job, their challenges and the opportunities that we don't fully understand. And I think that depending on our politics, you know, we can rush to judgment on, on both sides. You know, we could say, oh, these tenants, they're just lazy, or oh, these landlords, they're just greedy. And I'm sure you, you learn this, right, going out and, and talking to folks. It's much more complicated than that. And, you know, Sharina, Arlene's landlord in the book, I think you see her wrestle with the pain of eviction. You know, sometimes she can be really um, sterile about it, you know, kind of uh, all business about it. But sometimes it really eats her up, you know. And I remember when she was um, wrestling with evicting um, someone in the book uh, named Lamar. And, you know, she was just going back and forth about that. And finally she says, you know, I love him, but love don't pay the bills, <laughs> you know? And it was this, this moment of, of clarity. And, you know, we, our cities, our nation, um, we haven't given landlords that many more options when someone falls behind on rent. Um, you know, we haven't given them... Uh, phone number they can call for emergency assistance. Those exist, but often they're just so underdosed, right. you know, that that it doesn't reach much of the need. We haven't given them a third-party mediator to say, look, I, you know, I'm having a, an issue with my tenant. Can you please step in? A neutral person, that person exists in a lot of other countries. So I think that we need to think of the steps that landlords can take when, uh, you know, someone can't pay the rent uh, to eviction. I've, I've talked to a lot of landlords and they've said, you know, what can we do? Or what, what should we do? And I think that our answer should be there are a million things we can do before we get to that kind of eviction step. Eviction should be the last step hmm. and not the first. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, let's go to Umama in Shelby Township. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, guys. Thank Hi. you so much for taking my call. I'm a huge fan of the show oh, and a huge you. fan of what you guys do for the community, like bringing awareness to these topics. I have not read the book. I am just listening today, Mm -hmm. but I will be reaching for it. Um, My question is kind of like what you guys are talking about. I'm someone who has never experienced eviction or anything like that. I've been blessed to have the privilege of having stable housing, but 
what can I do um, to help families that are going through eviction or on the brink of eviction? Is there anything I can, mm-hmm. can I write letters to Congress? <laughs> like, what can I do to help families like in our area or even in this country? Yeah, Mama, that is a wonderful question. Uh, Matthew, one of the things that's come up over and over at our events, in fact, is this sense I think people have of uh, distance from this issue, right? That, hmm. that even if you know of it, you don't really know a lot about it and you don't really know what your role might be in, in turning things in a different direction if you're not a landlord, for instance, or, or a policymaker. Wh- what do you say to people who who have that question about what their role could be in in changing this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the good news is we don't have to start from scratch. And, you know, when I um, published Evicted, I also launched this website called Just Shelter. Yes. And, you know, what it does is say, look, there are organizations and there are people in your own communities, in your own town, and they've been working hard on these issues for longer than I've been alive. You know, they've been driving down evictions and fighting family homelessness and preserving affordable housing. So if you want to know, you know, what you can do to fight this issue, I think the best thing you could do is get plugged in to organizations that are already putting in the work. That are working uh, on it. Sure. Right in your own communities. And so you can go to justshelter.org and you can find out who those are. If you're in Detroit, you could go to like the Michigan Legal Services, United Community Housing Coalition. Um, community development advocates of Detroit are there. You know, there are all these amazing groups uh, that are that are putting in the work. I think that's that's the place to start. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then you know, take your talents and and merge those with this issue. You know, if you're an artist, you know, there's there's places for you at this table. You know, I mean, if you're a lawyer, oh my gosh, we need you. You know, if you're <laughs> a, a business person um, or just someone that wants to be involved, you can lean on your local leaders. Uh, to ask what they're doing, and so um, that's where I'd start. I'd start with the people that are that have devoted their life and their their to this cause yeah. in your community. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we can come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Matthew Desmond, and of course, we want to hear from you, Harold on the Northwest Side, Gene in Detroit, Jamal in Detroit, Cindy in Ferndale, John in Westland. We will get to you next, and don't forget tomorrow evening we are wrapping up our summer book club. Reading of Evicted by Matthew Desmond. We'll have a discussion about housing insecurity in our region, and we will tape an episode of Detroit Today. That's 6.30 to 8 tomorrow at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Matthew Desmond, a sociology professor at Princeton University and author of the book Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. The book was the foundation for our Detroit Today Summer Book Club, which we have been engaging in since June. We are going to culminate that book club tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward, where we are going to have uh, a conversation about housing insecurity here in Southeast Michigan 
also tape a live broadcast of Detroit Today. We'd love if you join us there. You can join us now uh, at uh, 313-577-1019. That's always the number on the phones here, 313-577-1019. Or you can go to Facebook and leave comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Matthew, I want to begin this segment talking about uh, something that, that shows up in the book, but that uh, that I think a lot of people have familiarity with uh, if they've ever been to or lived in uh, poor communities. Um, this vulturing of evicted items out on a curb when you drive past a house where someone has been put out and their things are there on the sidewalk. Um, you often see people picking over those things and trying to determine for themselves what they might what they might want. It's it's again an emotional touchstone, I think, in the book. Uh, our senior producer here at Detroit Today, Laura Weber Davis, came across someone doing that uh, in Ann Arbor, where she lives here. Mm. Uh, in Southeast Michigan, uh, the family wasn't wasn't there to to sort of stop it. But this is something mm-hmm. that that I think goes on all the time in in uh, around this issue, and it's one of the things that I think it's hard to it's hard to understand what the solution might be to that. But but also, again, this this moral complexity, right? The people who are picking over these things are also obviously people who are in desperate situations. And so that that uh, that need to judge that we have, I think, um, often leads us to, to the wrong kinds of conclusions about what's going on. Sure. So, um, you know, this is something that you realize when you watch a lot of evictions that people don't just lose their homes, they often lose their things. You know, they lose, like, almost everything. Um, because the things are either taken by movers to be mm-hmm. kind of locked up in bonded storage and, or, or they're left on the sidewalk to be, to be picked over and scavenged. And, you know, a lot of folks that had the choice would still opt for the sidewalk because they knew they couldn't afford the movers. Um, and the movers who operated in Milwaukee told me about 70% of the things that they take from, from people's homes just get thrown in the dump. And so there is something that we could do to step into that. You could think of nonprofits getting into working with, you know, storage unit companies or something like that mm-hmm. to, you know, keep evicted families things. You could even think of like a, a crowdsourced mechanism where someone says, you know, I've got a little room in my garage. I'll hold one or two families things till they get back on their feet. You know, um, I think that there's something that we can, we can totally fix. But then, you know, you kind of speak to this other, other thing going on, which is, you know, a lot of folks – um, that are struggling or living next to folks that are also struggling. Yes. And, you know, that can result in this deep sense of community when there people are sharing food. You know, you get your gas shut off, you shower at your friend's home, um, you trade information, you know, about like uh, where the best food pantries are. But it can also expose you to a lot of people's uh, suffering mm-hmm. and, and deprivation and that can that can come out like like this, like you you scavenging um, someone's things for something you you yourself need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I also want to talk a little about how eviction, which is the the focus of your work, fits into the larger 
context of housing insecurity and poverty. And and uh, by way of transition to that, I'll, I'll talk a little about the neighborhood where I was born here in Detroit, uh, over on the west side, where I have uh, recently become re-involved, uh, opening a nonprofit literary and community center there, and and trying to to help lift that neighborhood out of the the poverty that it's experienced in the in the thirty years since I left. But uh, eviction, of course, is is a huge issue on our block and in our neighborhood. But there are these other issues as well, right? Uh, the issue of squatting is a big mm-hmm. deal here in, in Detroit. And we have several families on our block who are living in homes that uh, that they don't have a lease uh, to, to, to be in. The issue of, uh, of foreclosure, uh, which still happens here in the city mm-hmm. of Detroit, and tax foreclosure, which I think is a peculiar issue here to us in the city of Detroit, at least in the way that we deal with it each year. Thousands of uh, uh, homes face tax foreclosure and hundreds and hundreds of families end up losing their homes, in fact, because they couldn't pay their taxes. But, uh, you know, being involved in that neighborhood and getting to know, uh, reacquainted with uh, with our neighbors over there, I've really started to, to see this all as a continuum, I guess, uh, and, and a, a very complicated fabric that... Um, that goes beyond eviction itself. And I, I, w- I would imagine that in your current work, of course, you're starting to see that, that same thing. Yes, yeah, so great. So, um, so I think when you look at eviction, you see a different side of the housing crisis than what usually hits you know, NPR or our, our newspapers. Mm-hmm, you know? and mm-hmm. So a lot of times when you write about the housing crisis, you know, the stories go, goodness gracious, it's, it's expensive to live in Seattle and New York. And it is. You know, it is. But when you look at evictions, you, look like the house, you, you realize that the housing crisis is not just on the coasts mm-hmm. or in our biggest cities. You know? It's in cities like Detroit. You know, that uh, see about, what is it, like 18 evictions per day. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, it's over 16,000 people evicted a year in the city of Detroit. You know, you look at Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Richmond, Virginia, have incredibly high eviction rates, higher than Detroit's and Milwaukee's. And so who's talking about Tulsa or Albuquerque when it comes to the housing crisis? We should. And so I think that's that's a big thing you learn. But then you also learn that eviction is just one piece of a larger, harder problem, which is this link between housing and poverty. And it is a link that I think that our, our policymakers have, have largely ignored. You know, and so when you get involved in discussions about how to reduce inequality or spur economic mobility, it's often it's often about jobs. You know, it's about families often or schools. You know, those are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. But housing has to be part uh, of that solution, including looking at foreclosure and the tax foreclosure issue, which is a huge issue. And it's an issue that it's wonderful that you're taking a deep dive in it in Detroit. This is something I saw a little bit in Milwaukee, just trying to understand like why a landlord would would divest from a property. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. you'd think that, okay, you know, if you're divesting from a property, you're going to have to pay the piper one of these days, right? You know, you're going to have to, if you ignore the little plumbing issues, you're going to have a big one pretty soon. And so I asked Sharina about this. You know, I asked her specifically what happened to the Hingston house. And you'll remember the Hingston's house was was in really bad shape. You know, they called it the rat hole. The plumbing stopped. Shereen stopped working on it. Doors fell on kids. It was it was it was run down, and uh, and the landlord Shereen ran it down, 
And so she just said, I gave it back to the city. And I said, what? what? And so she just, she let it go into tax foreclosure, you know, gave it back to the city. And I said, well, doesn't that affect your credit? And she said, no, you know, every property I own is under a different LLC, a limited liability corporation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I'm kind of shielded from that. You know, and I think, you know, this is an issue. You know, taxpayers should not be um, asked to bear the weight um, when landlords purposely divest from properties um, to increase their profit margins. Right. Right. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Harold on the northwest side. Harold, welcome to Detroit today. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, my situation was a little bit different. I used to live in Midtown, and my apartment changed over to Section 8 low housing. Therefore, I made too much money, and I had 30 days to get out. And I will be moving into a place this uh Friday, I'm staying with some friends. So mine was the opposite. Technically, I was not evicted. I just made too much money huh. for the dwelling I was in. Thank you. Wow. Uh, Harold, thanks very much for the call and and, and sharing that story. Uh, Matthew, that, that kind of reminds me again of of the complication of poverty, that, that in some cases uh, you have these strange iterations where someone who is poor – um, is not as poor as somebody else. And right. and as a result, they suffer in a different way. Yeah, sure. You know, and I think there's a missing middle here when it comes to uh, our views of housing. You know, there are some folks that they can't get out of the rental market. You know, they, they can't afford to, to purchase a home or um, their credit's uh, not in great shape to do that, you know. Uh, but they're, they're, not, they're not so far uh, below the poverty line that they are, you know, one of these uh, a lucky folks that get a Section 8 voucher. We should just remember that most folks below the poverty line don't get any housing help right. from state, local, or federal governments. Only about one in four folks that qualify for, for th- that kind of assistance do. And then there's folks like Harold, right? That, you know, they don't kind of reach that qualification, but they're kind of stuck in the middle. Mm-hmm. And our housing policy should be broad enough um, uh, for folks like Harold to benefit from. And in the least, you know, we should give him a lot more than 30 days mm-hmm. uh, if mm-hmm. he does have to move from his place. Yeah. Yeah. Harold, again, thanks very much for the call uh, and the story. Let's go to Jamal in Detroit. Jamal, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks hey. for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I worked in a methadone clinic for five years. Um, mm. I had the opportunity to work with a lot of social agencies and 511c3 agencies. And what I discovered was there were a lot of women and some men who were on Section 8, but they lost their Section 8 vouchers and could no longer qualify due to um, drug selling out of the home that a lot of the tenants that were on Section 8 were on. So I would like to know from the author, have you how often have you encountered situations where mothers or men could no longer qualify for Section 8 because of drug dealing being drug dealing being done out of the home that they were in, and that played a percentage of those being evicted. Mm-hmm. Great question, uh, Jamal. Thanks very much for that. Go ahead, Matthew. Right. So uh, I don't have the exact statistic right now, Jamal. It is something that we've seen um, happen all over the country. You know, public housing authorities have exhibited this kind of zero-tolerance approach to folks that are struggling with addiction, including uh, not folks that are themselves struggling, but folks like grandmas and moms whose uh, sons or grandsons or granddaughters might be uh, struggling with this issue. I think that, you know, as storytellers, I think that our job right here is to say, 
look, eviction is not a natural uh, response to something like that. It doesn't make any sense that we should take a family that's dealing with uh, an addiction mm-hmm. and say, you know what, we're going to make your life harder uh, by uh, withdrawing, house, right? by taking your house and, and throwing you on the street. How is that going to help this issue? And it reminds me of um, something I get a lot when I'm, when I'm on the road. Someone says, well, how many evictions are okay? Or, you know, the proverbial, what if you have a tenant and they have like a meth lab in their closet? Mm-hmm. Can I evict them? And it's like, yes. Yes, you can, you know, but um, it's kind of like uh, I kind of think of this as like incarceration. Like for some folks, you know, removal from the community might make sense. It might be the, the, the solution that all of us agree on, mm-hmm. but we just don't need so much of it. And with eviction, I feel the same way. Sure. If there's kind of folks that are making life dangerous for other folks, that kind of thing, you know, let's take steps. But even for folks that are just struggling with addiction, it doesn't seem that eviction is the natural consequence. I think of um, the community court in Cleveland, and I don't know if you've ever had a chance to go, but it, no. if you do, it's it's kind of amazing. It's it's like a it's like a diversionary court for eviction. And in Milwaukee, you know, you go to eviction court, and this is how it goes. You know, it's like uh, Mr. Desmond, I see you're behind seven hundred dollars. Is that true? And you say yes, and you can say all sorts of stuff after the yes, right? <laughs> you can say yes, but I relapsed. I'm sorry, I've been clean for eight years, but this thing happened. Or yes, but I lost my job. Yes, but my landlord. Won't fix the ceiling that caved in in my daughter's room. It does. It kind of doesn't matter. The yes is what matters, mm-hmm, right? You mm-hmm. you are behind. Now in Cleveland, they say uh, you're behind. You say yes, and they say why? Why? And you can you say that stuff. And there's full time social workers in the court that are gonna you know try to address the issue uh, at the moment. And that's a court operation like like an institution of justice. Yeah. You know, not like an eviction processing plant, which is what our status quo is. Mm. Uh, again, Jamal, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Uh, Gene in Detroit, you're up next on Detroit Today. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey, how, how are, are you? you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to ask the author, uh, poverty in the 21st century is really a man-made problem. And uh, I'm familiar with a lot of the groups he was talking about uh, in Detroit working on uh, these issues but uh regardless of the things that uh, the, their their best efforts uh we have implacable uh, uh almost obstacles that seem to increase by the day uh with with the uh, water shutoffs uh the Wayne County auction uh, tax auction mm-hmm. uh uh and and we just had a rental registration ordinance uh, pass that, uh, by all accounts, will exacerbate the problem. Mm-hmm. Are there political solutions that the authors envisioned mm-hmm. uh, that that uh, would be a, a, a much larger uh, uh, alternative to so many piecemeal efforts? Huh, huh. Gene, thank you very much for the call uh, and the really great question. Uh, Matthew Desmond, uh, sometimes I think when we think about this issue, really the question is, well, how do you solve poverty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that eviction and all these other things are all sort of connected to the hub of, of, of poverty. But, uh, but I think Gene has a great question there about policy and the way it drives some of these issues and whether there are policy solutions to these things. Yeah, how much time we got? I you know this is uh, this is a this is a big question, and um, I'll I'll do my best, although it it's going to fall short. And um, but I I think that 
what I love about Gene's question is how um, he's refusing to be easily pleased. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's refusing to say, "Look, you know, this little increase of the minimum wage or this little uh, win, I see him as a victory, but but we can do a lot more." And I think that's a beautiful way to approach this problem. You know, and we're the richest democracy with the worst poverty. That's who America is, mm-hmm. and. Um, We've, uh, we've had a kind of poverty that's much worse than poverty in other advanced capitalist societies, too. I mean, even London, which is the most American of all uh, European cities, you know, you go to their housing projects, which are called council estates, and they look great. They look great, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and they're, they're nothing like uh, you'd see in some areas of uh, Detroit or, uh, or Milwaukee or Gary, Indiana. And so I think we as a country need to reckon with that. And I think to get to these big solutions, we have to have a theory of poverty. You know, why? You know, what's going on? And there's two big theories of poverty today. You know, if we're more conservative, we say it's, it's about what you have inside of you. It's individualistic. It's your lack of skills, maybe your lack of certain values, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you have, if you're more progressive, you have what's called a structural theory of poverty. We have these legacies that we're left with, the legacy of racism and the legacy of deindustrialization that hit a city like Detroit right in the gut. And, uh, and we're, we're cleaning up the mess now. And, uh, those are kind of pitted against each other, but there, there's another way of thinking about it, which is, you know, poverty is a relationship. It involves you and me and everyone else. And so when Sharina pulls $500 out of Arlene's pocket for the, the rent, you know, that's, uh, you know, Arlene's $500 out and Sharina's $500 up, you know, mm-hmm. that's how it mm-hmm. is. And when you look at landlords and tenants, you kind of see it directly, but I think it's, it's also a mirror to all of our lives. You know, how are our tax credits or the the safety that, uh, or lack of safety that are in our children's schools or in our neighborhoods tied uh, to other kinds of schools and neighborhoods, other places. And so economists have this uh, thing that they call the productivity pay gap. And it's basically like in the early 70s, American economy just started, it just kept roaring. It just got so hot and the productivity shot up. But wages haven't kept up with that which means workers are literally more valuable to their employers today than they were a generation ago, but they're getting paid a lot less. Mm-hmm. You know, if minimum wage, for example, tacked to productivity, it would be over $20 an hour, not $7.25 it is today. That's just one example of how, like, you know, this idea that, uh, that poverty can be solved without, like, a broader thinking of, like, um, how how our kind of uh, growth and right. wealth hasn't translated into broad social uplift uh, is not is going to get us piecemeal things that Gene's not satisfied with and we shouldn't be satisfied with. Right. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Matthew Desmond as we wrap up our summer book club reading of his book, Evicted. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. John in Westland, Sydney in Ferndale will get to you. Also remember tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library, we're going to wrap up our summer book club with a live event talking about housing insecurity and a live taping of Detroit Today. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for joining us. My guest this hour 
is Matthew Desmond, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. That book was the subject of our Detroit Today Summer Book Club, where we have been talking about housing insecurity here in Southeast Michigan all summer. 6.30 tomorrow at the Detroit Public Library on Woodward. We're going to wrap up that book club with a live event and taping of the show. If you want to join the conversation now, you can give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Mary on Facebook says, in addition to the advice given to the caller who wanted to know how to help, we should be raising with electeds and candidates the lack of comprehensive, rational, fair housing policy programs at the state and federal level. Great advice there as well, Mary, and something to think about as we go into the fall campaign here in southeast Michigan. Matthew, I want to talk a little about where the book and the work that went into the book has led you now. Uh, You have uh, something, it's not terribly new, but it's it's still somewhat new, called the Eviction Lab. Uh, Tell us about that. So after I put the book out, you know, I started talking to community organizers and uh, uh, mayors and uh, soccer dads, you know, people all over the country. And they'd say, what, what, what's, what's eviction like in Detroit? You know, how are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we, how do we, where, where's our hottest eviction neighborhoods? Where's it going up or down? What laws work? We had no answer to these questions. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no single database in America that, that can be drawn on to answer these questions, which is crazy. You know, that's like not knowing how many car accidents happen every year, or how many folks get divorced every year, drop out of high school. And so I, uh, I helped uh, build a, a little team, and we set out to, to try to do that. And in April, we launched, you know, the nation's first ever uh, database of evictions. It's not complete. It's not perfect. We need your help to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, we did that. So, you know, no matter who you are, you know, if you're on the city council or you're teaching in community college or high school or, you know, you're a faith leader in your community, you can go to this website called evictionlab.org and you can click on uh, Michigan, Detroit, wherever you live in the state, and you can get facts about what the problem looks like in your own backyard, compare your city with other cities, push a button and and get that data right to folks that that need it. And so what are the things we've learned, you know? And so one thing that we learned was just how enormous a problem this was. You know, I mean, in 2016, which is our our last complete year of data, Mm -hmm. we estimated that about 2.3 million people lived in a home that received an eviction uh, judgment, 2.3 million. So how do we get our hands around that? So that's like twice the number of folks that got like arrested on drug charges that year, for Mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've been hearing a lot about the opioid epidemic and for for really good reason. You know, that's, that's a crisis. But, you know, there were about 65,000 people who died of overdoses in 2016. So that means for every tragic overdose, we have 36 people put out of their homes. And this number that we have, this 2.3 million, it's not probably low. It's absolutely low. It's unquestionably low because, you know, we don't have every formal eviction that's happened in America. You right. know, we're, we're still working on that. And so, you know, the number is, is incredibly high, but still too low. And so I think that that's, that's a clarity call for us. To say, Mary's right. You know, this should be at the top of our state and local and, and federal agendas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also saw your uh, 
your book, Evicted, turned into a Smithsonian exhibit. Uh, I'm really curious about how you felt seeing your work presented that way and whether uh, whether that also advances the work in, in some ways. So this is, this is an exhibit that's at the National Building Museum. It's free. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's in Washington, D.C. and they're interested in checking it out, go to the National Building Museum. And um, uh, we were approached by some curators at the um, museum that had read the book and were interested in, in thinking about this from a, you know, a building or a housing issue. And, um, and, you know, this is something that really was exciting to me because I'm kind of obsessed with the idea of like, okay, <laughs> how can we not preach to the choir? You know, how can we, how can we reach audiences that maybe you have never have came, came in contact with this issue? This is new to them. And so I think we're doing that a little bit through the eviction lab, which we, cause we allow journalists to download the data for free and take and write their own stories with it. And, um, and I think we do that a little bit with the, the exhibit where folks that are just popping into DC, maybe on a family trip, um, are kind of getting to see videos and hear audio from, uh, from children, uh, from families who have experienced mm-hmm. eviction and kind of interact with uh, the material in a very human kind of face-to-face way. So I think, you know, it's, it's neat to, I, sometimes I go in there and just lurk around and just see who's, see who's uh, checking it out. And, <laughs> and uh, you see a lot of kids there. You see a lot of high school age kids. You see a, a, a wide diversity of Americans. Um, and I, I think that's really encouraging to me. Uh, and hopefully it continues the conversation and elevates this issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to John in Westland. John, you're up next on Detroit Today. Uh, hi. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an act before the Michigan Senate which provided for expedited eviction with 24 hours notice for people accused of drug, tri- drug crimes, mm-hmm. accused of drug crimes. Mm-hmm. So not charged, not convicted, merely accused. All there had to be was a police report that said that, you know, somebody had smelled marijuana outside your apartment or something like that. And ostensibly, the uh, landlord could use this to uh, evict you, not with 30 days notice, but with 20 with 24 hours notice. Hmm. Now, uh, Mich- uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the current gubernatorial candidate, uh, was the uh, uh, the minority leader in the Senate at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm a liberal Democrat. And so I thought I would call, you know, Gretchen Whitmer's office and, you know, complain about this. And I, I thought I would get a sympathetic ear. But I was told that Gretchen Whitmer had voted for this mm-hmm. act. Mm-hmm. Now, it's clearly unconstitutional. It violates presumption of innocence, uh, due process and domicile, mm-hmm. you know, that you're being deprived of your home, you know, mm-hmm. based on mm-hmm. a mere accusation. Now, I guess that the Republican majority at the time voted for it, you know, in unison. And I was told that the only uh, the only Democrat, the only member of the Senate who had voted against it was Burt Johnson. Hmm. But so the point is, is that um, I don't know what became of this law. I don't know if it actually was enacted into law, but I know that it passed the Michigan Senate with uh, Gretchen Whitmer's vote. Yeah. uh, I, I'm I'm disappointed in Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer because uh, I, I until John John I, I really appreciate uh, the call and that that info I don't remember what happened with that uh, with that particular bill we'd have to go look that up but it does raise again uh, Matthew Desmond this this idea that we're maybe headed in the wrong direction still with this issue that we're not we're not focused on the idea that that evicting somebody is maybe the most disruptive thing you can do and that it doesn't it doesn't improve 
any issue. If your concern is drugs, if your concern is work, if your concern is uh, is anything, eviction uh, is an aggravator. It is not a help. Right. And I think what John is speaking to is something we've seen happen all across the country, which is the rise of these laws called third-party policing. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, you know, we're going to conscript people without a badge and a gun in the business of law enforcement. So we're going to ask landlords, hey, we think there's a, there's a drug den in your property. Take care of it. Uh, we're going to punish landlords for excessive 911 calls mm-hmm. from their property, and we're going to deem them nuisance properties. And so this is something that we looked into in Milwaukee. And, you know, we went to the, um, the police and we, we kind of said, we need two years worth of all your nuisance ordinances. And they, they handed them over and we crunched the numbers. And, you know, they thought these laws, which were holding landlords accountable for excessive 911 calls, they thought they were helping, like, um, screen out frivolous calls, deal with drugs and noise complaints, that kind of thing. But who they were hurting was domestic violence victims. You know, domestic wow. violence survivors are the ones that were calling 911 over and over and over again. And so landlords were evicting these, these women, you know, and in over 80% of cases when there was a nuisance ordinance, landlords evicted the tenant. Yeah. And so that's the bad news. And, you know, the, the more optimistic news is we, we took that finding, you know, to the police in Milwaukee and they changed the law and we uh, shared the research with the ACLU who has a campaign that's called I Am Not a Nuisance. And uh, we even got federal law back on the side of domestic violence survivors right before the election. Mm. And it does speak to John's kind of question about, are the laws that we uh, put in place uh, that might look um, good on the surface or in theory, in practice, can have consequences that none of us, you know, are going to get behind? Right, right. Okay, Matthew Desmond, sociology professor at Princeton University and author of the book, Evicted, Poverty, and Profit in the American City. It was really wonderful to have you back here on Detroit Today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate you. Mm -hmm. And remember, tomorrow evening, we are going to wrap up our summer book club reading of Evicted by Matthew Desmond with a discussion about housing insecurity in our region. And we're going to tape an episode of Detroit Today. That is going to happen from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward right here in downtown Detroit. That's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producer is Gus Navarro. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.